Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail! Or we have mail, if you want to be grammatically correct. I don't. My <laughs> name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Every co- everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. I write stupid jokes on a website. I, I wrote a really dumb joke today that I'm quite proud of. That, tell them the joke. Oh, gosh. Uh, it was about uh, an upcoming Star Trek series. Yes. It's called Star Trek Strange New Worlds, which everybody's calling Brave New World. Uh, just That's the mm. little brain fart everyone's having. And... Uh, it stars an actor named Anson Mount, and there's a scene in the preview for this new show where he is riding a horse past mm-hmm. a mountain. And my joke was, action mounts when Mount mounts his mount by a mount. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Everyone, we're going to give everyone and, uh, a moment to applaud at home. The editors left it in. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what they were thinking, but yeah, they they actually published. They know it that who way. they hired. <laughs> they knew. You you can read Whitney's. By the way, he wrote a really incredible article. Everyone knows uh, how much of a fan we are of Mystery Science Theater three thousand. Oh, Whitney no, we wrote talk a, about a lot. Whitney wrote a great article recently, sort of defending its place in the cultural firmament. Mm-hmm. And uh, boy, was it a great read! Just really Thank thoughtful, insightful, you. funny. Like uh, so, check that out over at Slash Film because he's writing really great stuff over I've, there. I've, 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 I can't speak to the quality just through I can. modesty and a, a complete lack of confidence I, in myself. I, I, I can do it. I'm speaking for the quality. Well, thank you. Uh, right. I, I can certainly churning out a lot. Um, mm. I'm, I'm writing a lot over there. Just eight right. hours of straight writing every day. And it's, uh, it's amazing. It, it's intense. And it's kind of what I've always wanted for a long time. I'm so, so I'm doing happy for you. You're so great. Uh, but we're not here to talk about me. We're here no. to talk about you. This That's is your right. show. That's right. Uh, this is the show where you control the conversation right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. Here's how it works. You write us, we read your letter or your email, and we answer them. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Or, if you prefer the old-fashioned way, we do have a P.O. Box. Whitney, what is that? That's right. Why don't you write us at our P.O. Box? Uh, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Who doesn't love getting a letter in the mail? Mm-hmm. Like it's like it's like you're in a Louisa May Alcott story or something. It's so <laughs> and, oh, oh, and as we were doing the introduction, we got a letter. Okay, our rule, and we never tell anyone when we record, and it does vary every single week. If we get an email... Hmm. During the recording of We've Got Mail, we have to read it. Yes. So we're going to start with that. Yeah, we're, so, we have no yeah. other choice. And, That's, and you, you gamed the system. I'm going whoever to say, you are. Oh, I'm going to say that uh, there's no way to game this. We record this show like I tell you, like at random days at random times. Yep, sometimes middle of the day, sometimes middle of the night, sometimes early evening, sometimes so first thing in the morning. You never know. There's no way to intuit it. It's just total. So whoever, whoever got this did. right, this is not our usual time. Next, nice try. We did get a letter from Mike, however. Hi, Mike. Uh, hello, Mike. Um, dear Bibbs and Whitney, uh, first, I hope both of you are well, and I would like to thank you for providing many hours of great and thoughtful podcasting over the years. Thank you. Happy to provide. We're trying. Uh, now brace yourself. <gasps> In what is quite possibly the first time on the internet, I have an opinion about Star Wars. Oh, snap. Do people... People talk about like I thought it was like you don't talk about Star Wars. It's like Fight it was Club it was or, briefly a thing like from like the late seventies to the early eighties, and then it sort of faded out. Yeah, so it's been yeah, a while since right. it's come up. Uh, yes, yes, yes. I would like to bring up something very specific about uh, the Empire. Those are the antagonists. Yeah, the bad guys in uh, one of the Star Wars. You'll, you'll recognize them because they dress like Nazis and they call themselves stormtroopers, and they're all I, white guys. 
Okay, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, in the original, uh, anyway. In the original movies, the Empire was shown to be owned and operated by chiefly white men. Yep. Mostly portrayed by British actors. Indeed. Yeah. Um, like I just said. Eddie Izzard has a great bit in one of her yeah. routines where uh, she points out that all of the... Uh, all, all of the actors on the Death Star are, are English actors. Yeah. Because of the Revolutionary War. Because it's an American <laughs> film. Yeah. And bad guys are English. That's the way Very the American habits. filmmakers think. And Very often happens. Obviously, this was intended to evoke things like colonialism and mm-hmm. the Third Reich and other fascist powers uh, fighting against two more diverse, the more diverse Rebel Alliance. Uh-huh. They have two girls. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> so the first Star Wars movie isn't terribly diverse. No, it's not. Uh, because it was made by a white guy from Marin County. Yeah. Uh, but in recent years, we've been seeing a growing number of women, people of color, and aliens in the ranks of the Empire. See mm. the Kenobi trailer, for example. That was released I watched uh, just today. As I have not recorded. watched it yet. I haven't watched it either. Uh, of course, I'm all for inclusion, but why is this happening in the Empire specifically? Why is Disney now placing them on a more level playing field as the Rebels? Is there still not a racist ideology at work within the Empire? With its officer who once referred to Chewbacca as a thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is there any ideology at all? Or is it now simply a matter of dressing in black leather and looking cool? So the fans can dress in black leather, look cool, and not have the baggage of actual fascist and racist ideology to go along with the space Nazis who admittedly have always looked cool. What do you think? Thanks, Mike. Uh, That's actually a really, really great question. Um, and yes, uh, just so that everyone is on the same page, it was never a subtle metaphor that the Empire was supposed to be in very, at least very indicative of the Nazi Party. Mm. Uh, Star Wars was created only about 30 years after World War II. We're still talking about it today, obviously, but the wound was even fresher. So nobody was confused mm. as to what was going on here. What so the, the idea that there was a bunch of... Uh, British people who all looked the same, who were basically trying to destroy an entire young generation of like hip ne'er do wells uh, who hang out with, with people of like with different di- with like you know, with the with a floppy, and hang out, like, floppy hair and disco boots. Yeah, um, this was not subtle. This was actually incredibly overt. Uh, there have always been like kind of exceptions. Obviously, Darth Vader was voiced by James Earl Jones. Mm. He wasn't playing a white character. But there's obviously some disconnect there, uh, and uh, there was well, and, and, it, it and would, it would be in which was which movie was it where yeah. we saw the back of Darth Vader's head? First time was Empire. Off. Okay, and that so was also the, and that was also the first time we confirmed that he was Luke and Leia's father. So that confirmed that he that, was, he that was he a was, white man. He yeah. was a white man. Yeah, that was the first time they confirmed that he was a white guy. Mm. For all you knew, he, he was James Earl Jones under there. For all you knew, so um, uh, I've heard James Earl Jones in in interviews saying like I'm. I'm, I'm like this guy from Mississippi, and somehow that was like the Lord of the Empire <laughs> of all these British men. Well, like, originally they talked about getting Orson Welles, but then they decided hmm. he was too recognizable at the time. Oh, that that would have been great, though, wouldn't it? Would have been cool. Yeah. Would have been cool. I'm not gonna lie, because now because you he, know he, today he would have been we, like way more of a smartass. Well, you know today we he'd be played by Maurice Lamarche. Well, if yeah, that were the case, yeah. so would be we'd, we'd be on we'd be having a good time, but. Uh, Anyway, yeah, uh, yes, I'm going to take over your empire. What are we going to do? T- what are we going to do tonight, Darth? The same thing we do every night. Palpatine, <laughs> try to take over the galaxy. My face The pelt beyond the Darth. Oh my God! Stop! Um, stop. But uh, yes, so but to answer your question, as we have expanded our idea of what Star Wars is, and we've had a much less narrow focus, and we have to focus on more different aspects of the story than were ever really intended to be shown initially. Um, 
a lot of the spaces that were left kind of empty are being filled and they're being filled in somewhat unexpected ways. My favorite way that I just, I just, I love how this has happened and I'm also annoyed by it. You'll recall in the original Star Wars, Star Wars Episode 4, New Hope. Just Star Wars. Just so we're clear. <laughs> when R2-D2 and C-3PO land on Tatooine and they're purchased by mm. Luke, and that's just, just a weird plot point. Slavery uh, exists in this world. Yeah, it's, it's, it's and Luke is, is doing it, and, and that's they, how we they, meet him. It's build, fucking fucked up and weird. They build their own non-living labor to yeah. and make And they make them sentient. I don't know why that. I don't know why that's important to them. It's, What's uh, in it for you? It's a prank. <laughs> oh, God, that's a horrible prank. Um, <laughs> and you have consciousness. <laughs> you're just evil. Um but uh, but they ask him like you know where where are we and he says well if there's a bright shining center of the galaxy you're on the planet it's furthest from mm. it is a hole it is a middle of nowhere mm. it is like Nothing's supposed it's, to it's, happen there. it's like in Barstow like technically <laughs> there's stuff there there's, there's a but bar but yeah it's no just... one moves to Barstow for the culture you know mm. like there's nothing there's nothing exciting going on there's no industry the whole point is it's the place you leave because it's the middle of nowhere and yet. Every single time we revisit Tatooine, we keep becoming more the center of the story. It's oh, it's actually Tatooine is the center of all organized crime. Oh, actually, Tatooine is the center of pod racing, which is everyone's favorite sport. Oh, actually, like it's so there's a lot going on in this the, backwoods planet that nothing's supposed to be on. And, and it turns out that Luke doesn't have any fucking idea what he's talking about, or mm. more accurately. People like revisiting places that they've seen before, and they just keep getting bigger. So, well, here, so, uh, so Tatooine is a perfect example of this, where the original mm-hmm. intention of it no longer actually tracks because we keep going back to it and yeah, rewriting yeah. it and reinventing it until it no longer fits the purpose yeah, it had all, to in the first place. All of those um, those prequel films from the the nineties and early two thousands. Yeah. Uh, well, they were all about how important Darth Vader was as a like this cosmic element throughout the galaxy. Mm-hmm. He was a like, chosen like the, one. Yeah, like and it was like a, a virgin birth, chosen yeah. one character yeah. being, you know, given all of these powers, like he's destined to do something evil about yeah. the universe. You watch Star Wars. He's, he's one guy. He's a scary guy, but he's yeah. just a guy. Yeah, he's the equivalent of, of any villainous fight mm. guy henchman. He's just a fight guy henchman. Yeah. And they, they turn him into something big because he's important to the audience. Yeah. Not because he's important in the story. Yeah. They made him more important to the story to match the expectation of the audience. And yeah. that uh, goes to a little bit of, of a larger point. And like you'll notice this that, happened with, uh, uh, Mr., uh, with Agent Smith in The Matrix. Mm. Like, he was a bad guy. But he wasn't supposed to be like, and then there's going to, of course, we always originally planned that he would become a virus and they'd clone millions of him and he would mm-hmm. take over the Matrix. It's like, no, he was the breakout villain and he had to bring him back. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, after the, we killed him. So he, here's or like, whoops, we killed Godzilla. We have to come up with a new one. <laughs> here's the unfortunate thing that uh, that fandom does to its mm-hmm. own objects. Mm-hmm. And it's it strips them of their own context. Mm-hmm. Uh, because fandom places so much emphasis on the details of the thing itself. If, if you'll follow me for a second here, yeah. that uh, it becomes its own context. It becomes its own point of reference yeah. rather than stemming from things that came before. We'd had a whole podcast about the things that influenced Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And we had to do that because a lot of people have lost sight of the things that have influenced Star Wars. Yeah. Maybe they know about Hidden Fortress, for example, in the abstract. Yeah. Some, some of them are uh, more famous than the others, but yeah. some of the influences on Star Wars are relatively obscure. Mm-hmm. And actually examining... 
where a lot of these ideas and ideologies and storytelling techniques came from was really illuminating and Mm -hmm. kind of helped me get back to the core of what Star Wars kind of is at its heart. Yeah. Whereas by doubling down in the minutia and having to make sure every single character gets a gigantic story to themselves, Mm -hmm. every single planet has to be completely thought out in every single detail, nothing can represent anything anymore. It has Mm -hmm. to be completely literal. Yeah. Which is yeah. also but then but then we create this problem here where the idea is that the empire is supposed to represent uh this very specific form of fascism mm. that was supposed to uh, uh remind us of uh Nazis. And the more like the the more we take that down a bit and the more like we elaborate on that and make it less about that the less power they have and they just become this kind of like shitty space bureaucracy yeah and it's not helping i think um obviously inclusive inclusivity is better across the board but when Mm -hmm. the point is these people are supposed to be racist you know like it's you lose that i think you undeniably lose that so i haven't seen the trailer for the new obi-wan i'm still too mad at bob chapek and everything going on over there for me to give them the clicks and talk about it online other than to say wow when when the shit hit the fan, they just released an Obi Wan Kenobi trailer, and a lot of people forgot mm-hmm. about how, like the fact that they gave yeah, the, money uh, to politicians for that. Uh, don't say gay bill in Florida. I'm, and- I'm wondering if uh, here's and and here's another ironic thing uh, because we're so focused on sort of the minutia of the object, mm-hmm. the details of the story being told in front of us, very in a very literal sense. We're going back to Star Wars uh, as yeah, an entity. Yeah. Star Wars as an entity. Um, that's. In sort of focusing on those minutiae, you're also losing a lot of maybe thematic power or connection to the outside world. Yeah. Uh, Nothing can represent anything anymore. It has to be completely literal. As such, talking about the Don't Say Gay Bill in Florida, which was financially backed by Disney. They were were backing the politicians who were voting for this bill. Yeah. The Uh, money we spent mm. on their stuff... Mm wound up going to hateful legislation. So, yeah, all, all very those, very imperial type legislation. Very imperial. Well, and I was going to go to specifically uh, like Spider-Man or the Avengers. Okay. These are superheroes, right? Who behave in a heroic fashion. Yeah. Uh, I was, I, I liked the last Spider-Man movie because sure, it actually okay. displayed heroism, which mm-hmm. is weirdly rare for this series. Yeah, it wasn't just about stopping bad guys from doing bad stuff. It was about but, taking a principled stand. Exactly. It was about yeah. doing the right thing when yeah. faced with bad guys. Not I, just about I think that's a up. very... I have issues with uh, Disney right now, but I mm-hmm. think that's a good movie. The, uh, Disney would be, do well to watch their own movies. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm wondering if how many fans of this series are taking lessons of heroism from them or if they're only getting lost in the minutia mm-hmm. and will continue to see these movies regardless of where the money is going. Because if, people... if it's the latter, they're not learning about heroism. No, it's really frustrating. I've been noticing this with the Batman a little bit. Like mm. some people are saying, like, "Oh, Batman is woke now," and I'm like, "I'm sorry, Wait. Ex- excuse me." Well, first of all, what are they pointing to in that? They're movie? pointing to specifically. There's one line of dialogue uh. where Catwoman says, "We can't fix this town because it's run by rich, corrupt white men," which right. is. Yes, that is true. That's true in the narrative, and that's true in real life. Um, so a lot of people are pointing just to that line, that, and also, and also a certain a certain not, general level of inclusivity. Right. But uh, but regardless, it's I don't like think the, you can point to Batman and say that he's that's he's not, not like super progressive. At he's, he's he's the the movie suggests that the only way to stop impoverished orphans from killing us all mm. is to let rich 
white guys break the law because they do when they do it, it's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it argues that yes, the police are corrupt, but also there's this great big hero shot towards the end about how most police are totally heroic. So, some at least some of the police are okay. Yeah. So it doesn't actually really. Mm-hmm. Argue against well, I mean, that level the, of police corruption. It just says there's a couple of bad guys, but we'll be fine. Yeah, the, the larger, you know? there's been a. Uh, My, it's, at it least doesn't, it, it doesn't was, actually argue anything. It was happening for, for a little bit there, uh, where um, superheroes in general and Batman specifically uh-huh. was being argued for uh, as an example of uh, pro police sentiment. Sure, because Batman is a cop. Yeah. And a lot of the uh, the Avengers films, in particular, but most superhero films mm-hmm. are uh, pro military films. Yeah, the Avengers are a military force. Yeah, they, maybe not literally, but in function, yes. Fun- functionally, they're just a mass and army. It, yeah. it took a, many films for me to sort of see that, like yeah. what was going on with that series. Yeah, it wasn't until like Doctor Strange says, "Wait, you're recruiting me into a war." It's about it's like, an arm. There it is. You're an armed force. It's ar- it's about its whole thing started mm-hmm. with an arms dealer mm-hmm. who realized that selling weapons to other people was wrong, but it's okay if he himself uses his own personal judgment and becomes a weapon. Yeah, and and that the more weapon-like he became, the sadder his story became, but the film didn't reckon with that at Not all. Not really, no. Uh, like, hey, I got I got all these cool weapons now. Cool. Are you, should you have those? Bad thing? When the government doing... says, we're wondering if maybe you, a private citizen, shouldn't be a weapon of mass destruction, or at least have that mm-hmm. at your disposable for you to use willy-nilly all over the world, and that was seen as the evil. Yeah. Is that the government was basically mm. just saying like, hey, maybe maybe so, you should so have some are, oversight. So these movies are actually uh, espousing some pretty conservative values. Very and much it makes so, a lot part, of yeah. sense that uh, you know, the company that's making them is supporting conservative legislation sure. and trying to paint over it with Pride Days at Disneyland. Yeah. Selling cute pride wear. Yeah. When really they're just taking your money. And it's no, and, it, and, and as, using and as it against you. The, the people, uh, the employees at Pixar recently mm-hmm. wrote like an open letter. It's on it's in Variety. Uh, about how Disney says, oh, well, our actual attempts to be, you know, our, 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 we, we don't need to make a public statement about why this thing is wrong because it's all in our movies. At which point the people who work at Pixar wrote an open letter saying, uh, you don't let us put gay stuff in our movies. We try and then you tell us we're not allowed to. Mm-hmm. So also, you know, oh, you, you're, you're making money off of Pride. You wouldn't let anyone openly celebrate Pride at Disneyland until I think it was like 2019. Wow. Yeah. Like, yeah, there's a lot of stuff in that letter. You should totally read that letter if you haven't. It's really illuminating. Um, anyway, that it, what you your email is very apt, and it sets off this big chain where basically we're kind of losing sight of what this stuff means mm. because we're getting so invested in it just getting bigger. And that's not necessarily helpful. And I think ultimately a lot of the well, stuff that we care about, we care about because it represents something. And the more into the minutia you get, the easier it is to lose why it's supposed to matter. And it's yeah, supposed to yeah. matter because that kind of fascistic thinking is bad. Mm-hmm. And yet we're kind of letting Disney get away with it because they're giving us more Star Wars. Yeah. Which is exactly the so, antithesis of Star Wars. So, uh, if, so what are we supposed to do here? If you... Uh, Support the queer community. Yeah. Support the queer community. Please. Uh, you have to uh, decide what's more important to you. Yeah. That support or... Star see, Wars. Or seeing Doctor Strange on opening night. Yeah. There may come a time when you actually have to, like... Mm. Make you, that decision. We actually, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think of the best way to put it, but you might actually have to engage in a form of protest. Yeah. And the mm-hmm. only thing that they're going to listen to is the possibility that they'll lose money. 
Yeah, and that's, that and also and, and and things like boycotting, like not watching trailers online, that kind of thing. They'll notice that right away. Mm. So that's a thing to think about. But anyway, we got off on a bit of a tangent, but I think it's oh, all it's, interconnected. It, it's so all, yeah, all yeah. Connects. Uh, so but thank you for that. And yeah, it's I think we're losing sight of what this stuff means, and we're losing sight of what morally we're supposed to glean from it. Mm. All right. Uh, anyway, I was going to start with this letter. Okay. Um, but uh, we got one live on we the did. show. So um, if, if we continue to get them live on the show, I'll continue yeah, to always. Those, I don't but, think we've ever had more uh, than one. No, it's only ever happened once per show. But yeah, uh, the, this the, is yeah. from uh, J-Lo, one of our uh, Hi, J-Lo. patrons. Good to hear from you again. J-Lo, not that one. Yes, uh, we know. Uh, J-Lo always signs uh, uh, her emails to us, Jennifer, which is very nice of her. Yeah. Jen, I haven't heard Jen, from you in a Jenny while. Jenny from the blog. Yes. Uh, greetings, gents. Two quick observations. First, mm. you've had Scott Mance on your show. We have. We it's have. It's been a, a while. Second, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, yet somehow when discussing the theatrical releases of June 1982 on All Our Yesterdays, you forgot Poltergeist. But more importantly uh, for All Our Yesterdays, that's our Star Trek podcast, All Our mm. Yesterdays. True. And uh, yeah, Scott Mance came on. We're talking about uh, um, we we talked e- about uh, E.T. E- Star Trek Two and Blade Runner and the Thing were all released sort of in a, a bit of a like yeah. around each other two of them on the same day yeah um, and we forgot to mention Poltergeist we did indeed we did we um, did it was a busy busy time uh, but more importantly for all our yesterday Star Trek Two the Wrath of Khan Mance likes to call it uh, something to the effect of the best or most important month for science fiction movies <laughs> and I think it's hard to disagree with him highly recommend people go back and listen to Drew McQueen and Scott Weinberg's episode of their now defunct 80s All Over podcast to hear their commentary on that particular month dear god uh, that was a good podcast it's good, and they didn't finish the project I know that I mean, kills it was, me it was massive well Drew McQueen Drew McQueen has like kind of like started over and is doing it now as like a newsletter uh-huh. like I think he's doing like week by week or something like that uh, so if you're interested in 80s all over, really wonderful podcast. They were going to review every single movie that came out in theaters during the 80s. And like they got the pretty whole f- decade. They got pretty far. They got into like, and there was like one episode per month. And they got to like 1984 or somewhere around mm-hmm. there. And it was a really great. It was, it was full of, like every episode was full of really great insights and sketches yeah. and audio clips. It was a really dense Really wonderful meal of a podcast. Mm-hmm. They just they never finished it, and that sucks. But it was but a great they, podcast. Check that out. Uh, I just wanted to say, also released that same month, the film Chen is Missing, yep. which is getting a Criterion release. So, yeah, very exciting. Uh, secondly, and to stay on my personal brand in the letter show of tech corrections, oh, no. while talking about Data and some other tech stuff on the shows, uh, Data is a character from Star Trek Next Generation. And again, we have a podcast on Patreon called All Our Yesterdays, where we review every single episode of Star Trek in order, and we're about half. A third of the way through season two? A third of the way through season two. Okay, we're, of we're, Next Generation. We're actually coming up pretty quick on Star Trek V, the movie. Mm, yeah. So we're going to have to do, we're going to take a break in the middle of Next yeah. Generation to do that movie. The further along we go, the more we're going to have to do multiple series concurrently. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. uh, there was a long time when two, sh- two Star Trek shows were running simultaneously. Yep. Uh, anyway, um... Data and some other tech stuff on the show. There's been some mix-up on the storage and on his storage and processing power. Ah, yes. While Data's brain can hold... Quote, 1,000 terabytes. Yep. The more crucial measurement comes from his processing power. Sure, Data's brain can be as big as the Library of Alexandria, to put it in a, in a more liberal arts terminology, <laughs> uh, but his ability to speed read everything just to find one factoid is the more impressive feat. Uh, while I'm not a crypto bro, fuck NFTs. <laughs> yes. Uh, there was a similar confusion on what makes them so terrible in one of your recent podcasts. Long story short, e- uh, it, it's so massively complicated. Yeah, there's um, a lot of reasons. Yeah. yeah. But here's what JLo is saying. Um, each time something happens on the blockchain, a complex mathematical problem gets sent out to any computer that's, quote, mining. 
and the first one to solve it gets rewarded with a small amount of currency. This leads to a lot of processing power and energy wasted on a losing race. The actual size of an NFT is minuscule, being frequently just a hyperlink to a picture that's only a few bytes. But the problem comes from the race and the energy wasted on it. If anyone hasn't watched it yet, a YouTuber called Folding Ideas, a feature-length a feature -length video called Line Goes Up, The Problem with NFTs, gives a deep hmm. dive into the problems of crypto and non-fungible I haven't things. seen it, so I can't speak to no. that, but thank you for the recommendation. Um, they're going to go away so soon. Um, this, it we're, was, we're waiting for it to bottom out. It's got to be yeah, a big crisis. Right now, rich people, it's, it's like a pyramid scheme. There are people at the top mm -hmm. who are making a lot of money from it, and it's just once they start losing money, that's when it's going to actually come yeah. together. Because uh, right now, they have like a security net. They have a security net, and from what I can tell, it's just so you can own a, a. It's so you can keep a great deal of currency off the books. Yeah, which makes it specifically designed to launder money. That's yeah. all it's for. It's it's a money laundering yeah. mechanism, exactly. Like it's it's made for criminality. I Why know. is it not illegal? Anyway, uh -huh. um, so sure you could, you could go to a Best Buy and get enough storage to make a data brain. Fuck you, I'm not that deep into Star Trek. <laughs> Positronic? Is that the techno babble they use? <laughs> yes, he has a positronic brain. Whereas Lore has a negatronic brain. No, he also has a positronic brain. Uh, but no, but he's mean, so it's negative, positive and negative. Without a super processor, you're not going to get there. And with the silicon shortage still looming, good luck finding any in any stores anyway. Well, that's, that's why that's why he had to go to outer space to make data. That's exactly why. Why? Well, I don't know. You best, tell me. Best regards, JLo. No, not that one. Uh, P.S. Bibbs, thank you for being a good sport about the self-destruct debate a few weeks ago. Ah. Your death phobia skipped my mind when writing the letter, but your thoughts were insightful and amusing nonetheless. Thank you very much. And yeah, so we're really getting into the weeds with some Star Trek stuff in all our yesterdays. And yeah, Data is supposedly like this incredibly sophisticated uh, android, and he's got 1,000 terabytes of memory, which is fine. That's a lot of memory, but they treat it as though no one's ever put this much memory in a thing before. And actually, yeah, you could totally do that if you really wanted to. Uh, but I don't think anyone's ever really specified the processing power. I don't think anyone's ever said his processing power, his blankety blank mm. data units, or whatever. Mm. So I'd be curious if I'm curious if they've ever clarified that. And I'm wondering if that actually tracks and is yeah. is as impressive as they say. Because again. Sci-fi that's really tech-based can only usually go off of the technology that exists at the time. Mm. And the people inventing it, sometimes they're forward-thinking enough that they predict something that will eventually come into being, but usually they're working with what we know of at, at whenever at it's moment, written. Yeah. And as a result, so, sometimes there are little specific things that might seem... Like a big deal now, but in 20 years, as computer processing develops, as space travel develops, whatever it is, no longer seems that impressive. And it yeah. kind of like the it's difficult to go back and read that story without doing a little mm -hmm. a little chortling yeah, at how naive we were. But what I found curious about, uh, if you look over sort of the history of science fiction and that kind of extrapolation of technology from whatever the present is, yeah, um, a it's always fascinating. You know, you go back to a science fiction film from the 50s. Ooh, you can push a button and a a meal comes through a little window. Ooh. So you you invented an automat, like the thing that's been around for 20 years? Uh, oh. Yes, but there was no coins this time. It's a button. Push button was very I, big I, in the 1950s. I, I, I remember uh, uh, Back to the Future, part mm. two. Half the stuff in the future, shit, is really cool we don't have now, like a microwave that works in two seconds. Mm. I want that. That's well, great. Yeah, Let's do that. It was a hydrator. Yeah. But also, you'll notice that, like, in the alleyway, like, when they hide the DeLorean, there are just huge stacks of giant laser discs. Like, they still think <laughs> that's going to be the format of the future. Yeah. They, uh, they didn't know. 
uh, I, I found it kind of curious to see the technology evolve because you want a science fiction film now. Um, what's the technology you see? The stuff that was introduced in Minority Report, yeah. floating holographic uh, computer panels that you can yeah. sort of tap by just waving your hands through the air. That's, yeah, that's the big hit thing. Um, and we're starting to see of, more of that. VR is getting a little bit more. Yeah, on but, it. it's. I don't think it's ever going to take over the way they want it I, to. But. I. Uh, I would hate using a machine that way. Yeah. I never wanted it, even when I saw it in Minority Report. So yeah. I know I'm just sort of fighting a losing battle as we are trying to push our, the tech in that direction. But what I found interesting is that a lot of it is very computer-based. Yeah. Um, you look at something like, this is a, a weird example, but the remake of Total Recall. Uh, where that people is a had, example. People had telephones implanted in the palms of their hands in yeah. that movie. I'd never seen that in another movie. And if they wanted to see a TV screen, they'd place their palm on a, any pane of glass, and it would yeah. project onto that pane of glass yeah. from their palm. Interesting idea. Uh, cool technology. But that's all, like, phone and widget and computer-based, well, because right? Because we imagine... Well, oh, hang on. Let me oh, so let's point. finish, um, yeah. That's because we are in an age where everybody is using telephones. Everybody's mm-hmm. using computers. We're just sort of extrapolating from the popular technology. Yeah. You go back to the 1950s, it's rocket ships and traveling into space mm-hmm. and hyper travel and you know, high-speed rails. And we imagined like... that we would invent a new thing for every single thing well, we would want rather than even... try to consolidate all yeah. of our needs through one smart device that would control a variety well, of things. Uh, well, hey, that's, that's not the point I'm getting at. Though. Oh, I see. Uh, in the 1950s, where is all of this technology coming from the rocket ships the travel based technology well this was the time of highway explosion throughout the United States car culture started becoming we were starting to make satellites that were floating around Uh, drive-in theaters or drive-in theaters drive through restaurants like driving it was all about staying in your car Uh, so it was all very macro technology and now we're focused on micro technology and evidently that sort of comes and goes in waves Mm. the personal devices versus the travel devices right uh, and uh, this puts an interesting angle on that film Tomorrowland, if you remember when that one came I out. I do. Bi- one of the biggest bombs ever, by the way. Yeah. It lost a heck of a lot of money. Uh, but that's about trying to go back to when technology was pure. And it's all when about... When it was inspiring rather inspiring. than cynical, yeah. Technology was inspiring when it was trains, jetpacks, cars, 1950s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is like a throwback to when we thought traveling was going to be the more important thing. And somehow that is considered inspiring yeah whereas computer panels and tools and and you know things that make it so you don't have to go anywhere yeah rather than making you travel the travel is now coming to you yeah that's less inspiring i i I get it now that it's debatable whether or not those things are good or bad and you know they're it's all all about context all about how you use them they're just tools i found it very interesting though that over the course of science fiction you can kind of see what we thought was going to be the dominant technology and what has been the dominant technology uh i'd be interested to see how we look back at this phone era once we rotate away from whatever it is we're in right now yeah. because I mean technology will continue we can't imagine what the next thing is going to be no, our imaginations yet. aren't big enough yet no uh, which is yeah. exciting mm. which is genuinely exciting so to think when, about, we look, like, when we look at technology now it's just yeah. an extrapolation of what we have yeah. anyway that's we should move on but like these point, are, but these but are the yeah. questions that like come up as we look at futurist storytelling mm. yeah. like Star Trek in depth which we're doing all the time and all, uh, all yesterday so Thank you for thank you for contributing to that conversation. Let's move on. What's our next letter? Our next letter comes from ML. Hello, ML. Hi, ML. Uh, hello, beautiful, gracious, and intelligent gents. I hope you're both doing great today. Aww. Uh, well, there's William, who's the other one. Uh, I, I just had a few questions that popped Whitney's, into my head today. Whitney's very handsome, by the oh, way. Moving on. Fish. Um, 
What are your thoughts in general about the recent controversy regarding a certain review of Pixar's Turning Red? Ah. Uh, Should it have been taken down? It's a bad review from the start. Why, uh, but why not leave it either way? Why try to erase bad takes that man puts out into the world? Uh, more importantly, though, I wanted to ask you both about how you guys handled the concept of intended audience as film critics. This is something we've talked about this before, but sure. uh, it's always worth talking about. Um, that review keeps coming back to this concept, which I find odd more than anything, since this is not a qualitative film criticism of the film, or is no. it? Whether a film has a broad audience in mind, it doesn't really say anything about the quality of the film. It's only human that filmmakers may have an intended audience in mind, but does that matter once they release the film into the wild? I watch a lot of films, and the intention seems to be for good context, but not much else. Good for context, but not much else. I'm paying to watch the movie, so it really doesn't matter if the filmmaker in- intended is me intended me as their audience. I am now the audience. Yeah. It doesn't matter either way. I'll love a film regardless of the fact that the characters or issues resemble my own experience. Thank you for the letter on the on the podcast or off the podcast. Uh, I love what you guys do. Keep it going, ML. Thank you, ML. Uh, for anyone who's maybe not heard about this, uh, what happened was there's a new Pixar film called Turning Red. It's uh, opening on Friday. It's going to be on Disney+. Plus. Um, I haven't seen it yet. When have you seen it yet? Uh, I, I got a screener and it expired. Ah, right, right when I tuned it, it's like, you know, well, you we'll see it this, this two days ago. We'll see it this uh, weekend. So we haven't seen it yet. We can't speak to the film and its quality or lack thereof. It may be brilliant. It may be terrible. We have no idea. But the, this review... Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to cite the critic's name, but I forgot what it was. I think it's, like, I think it's at Cinema Blend. It's, it's the the critic at Cinema Blend. Yeah. Um, uh, he, they wrote an article. He, he or, wrote an article yeah. about. He wrote a review of Churning yeah. Red that essentially laid out. He said that Pixar films. This was his, his thesis. Yeah. Pixar films are typically universal experiences yeah. that every kid can relate to. Uh, something like Toy Story. Kids imagine their toys coming to life. Yeah. Uh, Monsters Inc kids with closets imagine monsters living in their closets sure uh and turning red is about it's it's essentially about a a 13 year old hitting puberty yeah and when you hit puberty you feel like you're changing and your body your body is changing and in the movie she literally becomes a red panda it's it's the same premise as teen wolf it's the same premise as Um, teen wolf it's got a lot of similarities to stuff like ranma one half or really anything really where teenage the the Foibles of adolescence become literalized in a fantasy environment. Buffy yeah. the Vampire Slayer was not dissimilar. Now, Harry this, Potter uh, was not dissimilar. There you th- go. This critic cited uh, the fact that because the character is A, about a girl, uh-huh. and B, about an Asian American living in San Francisco, mm. that it is... Were they in Canada? I thought it was San Francisco. I don't know. We haven't seen it. We haven't seen it. So if we're we're wrong about the location, I'll Uh, look it up. This this is probably worth it. If it's Canada, cool. It's Canada. Um, Yeah, yeah, it's fine. I just just thought I heard it was Canada. Okay. Maybe it's Toronto. I apologize. I'm going to look this up right now. It's not super important to the conversation, but we might as well um, get it right. T- time, place, gender, mm-hmm. and and cultural background, though he said mm-hmm. we're playing a factor in his ability to mm-hmm. get, to uh, relate to this movie. It takes place in Toronto, Toronto in 2002, right. about a Chinese-Canadian 13-year-old. Okay, excuse okay. me. Okay. So we were wrong about a, a detail. Asian American. Yeah. yeah. Chinese-Canadian. I, yeah. I apologize for that. We too. were wrong. We haven't seen it yet. We're I haven't just seen the movie yeah. yet, so I can't speak to it. I didn't, yeah. didn't know. Um, yeah. We, we know about it in the broad swath. Uh, but... Uh, what the critic was saying was uh, that it, in making it about something so specific, it was, and this was, he was speaking it in sort of like this concerned tone of voice that most audiences, mm-hmm. 
and he's speaking yeah. for most audiences in this case, wouldn't be able to relate to that story. And this is uh, a, a good example mm-hmm. as to how a very limited perspective and a very limited type of voice uh, needs to be addressed when it comes to film criticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, there has been a push over the course of the last decade to diversify voices on platforms like Rotten Tomatoes mm-hmm. and the Academy uh, in most critics groups. There's always been a push, but in the last decade, it's, we've it's, actually it's been making been, some it's actual... It's been a lot more active yeah. and, and conscious. Yeah. Uh, because this man was essentially arguing mm-hmm. that he doesn't understand a movie because it's about an Asian girl. Yeah. And not... And I in met, Toronto. And in Toronto, rather than being about a white boy in America. He doesn't use those terms. He doesn't use those terms. But, but that's it, kind of what he's implicitly well, because, saying. Because, what he's, because the argument, the general argument is that, okay, so we're looking at... I am able to appreciate Monsters, Inc. because there's a general sort of thematic understanding of Monsters in the Closet equal blank. Mm-hmm. I can appreciate Toy Story because we all imagine our toys being alive. Uh, but I can't imagine puberty making me feel like I turn into something new because in this particular instance, all of these specific details, cultural signifiers, m- m- alienated him, basically. Mm-hmm. And this is all paraphrasing. Um, a lot of people started sharing that review and talking about it and basically pointing out that there's a lot of flaws with that line of thinking. Mm. In, if in general, uh, almost any movie you ever see is asking someone in the audience to appreciate experience that is not their own. Even the, you know, the, so many movies throughout the course of, uh, of movie history have been about the white experience, typically the white male experience. A lot of non-white people have been have, have seen those movies, mm. and they got the gist of it. <laughs> so when you flip that around, it's not all of a sudden, oh, uh, my ability to interact with or understand a material is being taken away from you. Mm. It's actually, you're getting this opportunity to do one of the most important things art can do, which is allow you to experience yeah. life through other lenses, through other perspectives, through other cultures. Oh my God, that's literally maybe that's, the most that's, important that's, that's, thing art can do. It's what, why we're here. Yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, that's... So it's incredibly frustrating to hear someone talk about mm. that as a negative. It, well, it, it also speaks to uh, what a... And, and I hate to say it, but what a bad critic this person is. Um, in that he yeah. is unaware of the function of the art he is criticizing. Yeah. That the function of this is to get into another person's mindset. Yeah. And... Uh, when you are a white guy who is used to seeing white guys on screen, mm-hmm. uh, that you start to assume that's the default. Yeah. And that anything that is not about a white guy is a deviation from that default. Exactly. Uh, and that is what we call sexism. That yeah. is what we call racism. Uh-huh. Uh, that is what we call homophobia. Well, we're not accusing it's, this it's, particular critic of having all the things, but that's no, where it comes from. It's living is, inside that bubble. Exactly. This idea yeah. that... Uh, films start with uh, a white male perspective yeah. and uh, the idea that a film about an Asian character is mm. for an Asian audience yeah. and that a, car- a film about a woman is for a female audience yeah. and that a film about a white male is for everybody. everybody. What the fuck yeah. is that shit? That is a very subtle form of bigotry yeah. uh, that has sort of leaked into uh, cri- that had been leaking into criticism for a long time and See, that I'm, we're we recognize and are addressing. See, I would actually argue and this is like this kind of regressive idea that yeah. we need to sort of 
keep on having uh, this idea of the white male perspective as the universal. Well, I would actually really fast. I just want to say, mm. argue, I would actually argue, and I know what you meant, but mm. I, I don't think it's a subtle form of bigotry. I think it's an insidious form of bigotry. That's that's, and I think that's a more a, accurate a, way a to put word, it here yeah. because. In a, an individual film, you might not think to yourself, oh, it's a film about a white guy. Okay, that's we, we're allowed to have those, right? That's fine. But when you realize just in the aggregate how many there are, you're looking not just at an individual film, you're looking at the broad swath of the art form and the medium and the industry that creates it. And that's when you start to see the real problems that arise and within the industry too. And I want to make something abundantly clear in case anyone isn't aware, mm. we're both white guys. We are. We are both cisgender white guys. Mm. All right, Whitney's by. I'm, I'm a bisexual uh, like, man. I'm not I'm, sure what. Yeah, that doesn't get me well, a lot. No, no, no. I'm just like, for, for the sake of full clout, transparency, but, but like you know, that's uh, transparency. Transparency. Uh, just, just for the record, if anyone does, wants to know mm. like where we're coming from, we're coming from here, and I know. That in my life, I have been more ignorant than I am now. And I know that in the future, I will look back on me now and say, oh, you were so ignorant then. And because mm. we're always trying to get better and we're trying to learn and, and we're trying to improve ourselves. I know I've written some shitty reviews in the past oh, with the, like, which like, you know, I was probably like really all up in my head about the auteur theory or whatever <laughs> like that or, or whatever. I'm, I've not always had the exact sense of taste or, or artistic values that I have now. But you need to call it out when mm. this kind of shit happens. So yeah, yeah. calling it out is fair. It it it's a very when you're a critic, you you don't get to like complain when people criticize. It's one thing if it's unreasonable or mean, but it's still like your your criticism is perfectly valid to criticize. Yeah. It's fair game. You can go too far with it, you can make it personal, you can be shitty, but it's fair game if we come from an illogical place. And there have been times when we've reviewed movies on critically acclaimed and then we get an email and we've got mail and someone points out, hey, you overlooked something here, mm. which is actually kind of problematic and difficult. And I like to think that every time we take that seriously, I think we always have. We're, 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 we're trying we're to critics. like... critics. We take criticism yeah, seriously, so like every even time, of ourselves. Every time you say that and there's any element of validity to it, we're, and it's, it's not just like coming from out of nowhere, but like mm. it's actually supported by the text. I always think to myself, oh shit, okay, well, how do I deal with that? Is that? Does that change the film? Does that mean a positive becomes a negative? Does that mean a negative becomes a positive? Or is this just part of Rich Tapestry and I missed one element? I'm hoping that the critic at Cinema Blend is taking this to heart and growing. That would be nice. Yeah. And uh, whether or not the review needs to stay up or come down, that's a difficult question. They get to decide that for themselves. Well, One I, could argue... Yeah, the, the outlet... Uh, yeah. This idea that, you know, putting it on any kind of outlet is giving it a platform. Yeah. And, and if not everyone's going to see it within yeah. the context. And even if you do put a note yeah. on it, like editor's note, we don't agree with blah, mm. you're still allowing it to find an audience. Yeah, and it's, and it's like, yeah, so that's their choice. They get to mm. choose what's their most important to them there yeah. to, uh, to own up to the mistake or to prevent the, the mistake um, from affecting too many people. The uh, It comes down to something kind of... It it, it it should it have been taken down. That's not my call. Uh, yeah, that's that's. I'm glad it's there, not my there call. There are, sh- difficult there are call. shittier takes there's, out there. There's an argument and, both sides. And I, that, I don't yeah. think you know Cinema Blend's a pretty big website, but yeah. I don't think in the broad scheme, having this one shitty, you know, vaguely mm. racist, vaguely sexist re- review uh-huh. sort of floating out there, uh, up or down, is really going to have a great effect on the broad scheme mm. of things. I think I think like, it should definitely have an editor's note on it if they kept it up. Yeah, but keep putting an editor's yeah, note. At the so, very yeah. least. And taking it down, I see the I see the argument for that mm. too. I really do. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. It's it's like um 
the problem is trying to take it down, like mm. objecting to it and yeah. writing angry letters to the editor and saying take that down. Yeah. Uh, that's but that's your right, and you can do that. Yeah, it's, I, your, it's you I, saying I am, what you want as an audience, and I'm they can little, take that seriously, or they can go a different direction. I, I might be a little cynical about the entire process, but I think when we have an article like that taken down, or mm. when we find somebody who has a racist view on like Twitter, and we get the like get them blocked, we're really not accomplishing much. Uh, I don't mm. think that think... that they're really kind of moving. Like we're not ridding Twitter of like one angry no, voice and making any kind of progress. I think it's just sort of stressing how powerless we are in, a, in the face of a lot of this one stuff. One could make that argument. One could also say that we are, one, could also say, one could also say that we are collectively deciding and sharing what our values are. Yeah. And that's, people call that cancel culture and, you know, it usually doesn't have much of a lasting impact. Mm. Maybe someone is off of Twitter for a while. Maybe someone... Uh, uh, loses a gig, but a lot of them just come back anyway. Yeah, a lot of yeah. people don't harbor those values and don't take those values that seriously. But when people say these are our values and this is something that really hurts, I think we should listen to that. I think mm. it's a different, it's a significant voice. What we, how we respond, may differ depending on what has actually transpired. But we're getting off into a, into mm. a whole thing here. Um, so um. Yeah, it, it's it's a it's not a great perspective for a critic to have on anything. I honestly, mm. we've talked about this a lot. We talked about this really recently. I think we were talking about uh, some of the Oscar shorts about how specificity, mm. you know, making telling stories about people in specific situations, specific cultures, specific mm. geographical locations, specific times, uh, is actually more universal than trying to make something that generically applies to everybody because yeah, the, uh, things uh, that generically applies to everybody is just a vague statement. But yeah, when you yeah, talk when about someone, when you're sort of at this, um, yeah, sort of like, oh, I, I agree with that. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't, I can be complacent in watching this and yeah. not, not challenge myself. And, yeah. but that's not teaching you anything. No, when you, uh, when you see yeah. a, a story of somebody else who is living outside your culture, uh, yeah. even from a culture that you may not even recognize. Yeah. Uh, you're, you start looking for similarities. And, and you then you find, find them. them yeah. don't you? Uh, and then we connect all people together it, in, a, in a very important way. incredibly curious yeah. that this film critic went to a mainstream, big-budget animated film in English uh-huh. and was unable to find any kind of similarities I mean, between himself and that character. Yeah. The other thing I want to say right now, this is a more of an inside baseball kind of thing about the industry, a lot of websites do not have a great system of editing in place. And by editing, no. I don't mean film editing, cutting films together, or cutting short interviews together. I mean, you write an article that goes to somebody, they read it, they come back to you with notes where applicable, and then they have prevent you and, it, yeah. and they have you rewrite it or they prevent articles that are basically going to like are going to have this kind of reaction that maybe are problematic or maybe do espouse some really shitty ideas that should be taken to task for you could do that before it it raises hell Mm. a lot of these places don't have editors who have the time or resources or maybe not even the editors at all Mm. to do that we need more editors (laughs) we need people Mm. who are trying to make sure that the articles that get published at publications are good. Oh. <laughs> that's, and, and, uh, that's. I feel like that's uh, should be a no brainer, but it's not where this. It's not where the system is going. There used to be uh, when there were a lot more outlets and a lot more publications. They would hire proofreaders. Yeah, 
Like, not even edit, not just for content, just to make sure all the T's and R's yeah, just slashed to, like, and like, the correct the grammar and, and all the spelling and yeah. all the rest and punctuation and such. Yeah, yeah. All, all of that would go through. That a, was a, a whole team job. Of proofreaders, a lot of them, yeah, and they got paid a lot because that's a hard job. It is a hard job, and they would, and then they would hand them to the editor, and the editor would then say, "Look it over for content and yeah. say this is okay, this is acceptable, this is you're making acceptable. this argument badly. Yeah, this paragraph uh, is irrelevant. This doesn't make that a lot kind of sense. Thing. Yeah, yeah they're, they're you need to support this. Where's where's this quote from? That kind of thing. Everything became so cheap, everything sped up that a yeah. lot of those people just lost their jobs, and now mm-hmm. we just get very sloppy things. Put uh, up there are the good time. editors out there. I know several of them. Please don't feel like I'm calling you out. I also mm-hmm. just know that there's a lot of places, and I don't know Cinnable Blend is one of them, but I also know that if I was an editor and that article had come across my, my mm-hmm. desk, I would have been like, oh, fuck, I'm, I'm no, not, we I'm need to have a conversation this, yeah. about this. This is uh, not a good article. Uh, to the second point uh, yeah. <laughs> from the letter. Uh, and this is going to be a very brief point because I, yeah. I have an axiom to go for it. Uh, intended audience. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. A film is for whoever can buy a ticket for it. Period. Yeah. <laughs> that's the intended audience. If you can buy a ticket, that's for you. Yeah. Uh, is it a G-rated film? It's for literally everyone. Yeah. Because everyone can buy a ticket. A, a five-year-old can walk yeah. up to a G-rated film if they have the wherewithal mm. and buy their own ticket. You can say the same thing about an R-rated film. Mm. People are going to grow up. Eventually, you're going to yeah. be allowed to see that. Um, you know? Yeah. Who, who's the intended audience for an R-rated film? Unattended? Any 17-year-old. Yeah. But that, Basically that's that. the idea. And, and, uh, and, yeah. Uh, and getting sort of hung up as to like who this is for. And this uh-huh. get, comes, comes back to fandom again, uh, because yeah. there's this idea that, you know, if, if you're the not Batman is for people who like well, real like, Batman yeah, who, stories, well, well, it's a lot of gatekeeping involved. Yeah, well, in there's a lot sometimes. of pretense to it. It's like, yeah. you're not going to understand or truly appreciate the artistry of this film unless you have context as to like other Batman stories that have previously mm. been published. And, and if you don't know those stories, you won't understand those. And to be fair, that is not exclusive mm. to geekery. One could argue oh, that's something like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, a brilliant yeah, play and a really great movie. Hamlet, you won't know yeah. that, that movie. At yeah. All. If you don't understand, if you've never seen a red Hamlet and you watch Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, you're probably, you might enjoy it. You might mm. not. You're going to be lost because there's yeah, the, a uh, lot that really specifically references a pre-existing work of art. Typically, I like films that are called, like, pretentious when you have to sort of do a lot of, like, research into history and art to even understand some of them. Right. Uh, I really love Cree Master 3, the Matthew Barney Uh, three-hour museum piece freakout that was only supposed to play in museums is not available on home video There aren't a lot of things we disagree on more than the Cree Master cycle. I love the Cree Master cycle It drives me up the wall. Okay, Uh, But, yeah, if... If unless you know sort of like the history of the building of the Chrysler building and the way it relates <laughs> to the fineries of rituals in the free in like Freemason societies, uh-huh. if you're not if you don't know anything about the way the Guggenheim was built or thrash metal or uh-huh. like horse racing or dentistry or Vaseline, or, it's going to be a real long three hours. Yeah, like all of those things. <laughs> like it's fascinating to watch, but it's like what the fuck is happening? And so yeah. you have to kind of research what. To be fair, Craymaster is 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 a rather abstract work of art. It's not it, a very inviting it's, it's, work of art. It's a surrealist work. Yeah, it's but, not, um, it's not intended to be consumed on mass. It's a museum piece. Yeah, but but, a, the, a but of, Lane, we're talking about intended audience again. Uh, but the, yeah, the. The, the imagery won't really connect in any kind of meaningful way unless you sort of have this outside knowledge. Yeah. I, so maybe I, the intended audience is somebody who has that kind of knowledge. Right. I will say this. I think I, I, I agree with Whitney's philosophy up to a point. I think it's mm-hmm. generally speaking correct. I think that there is no reason why any movie, regardless of pretense, regardless of whatever the author intended, should be kept away from anyone else or is compl- or should 
by definition, not be for somebody. Uh, this is how we get exposed to new ideas and new works of art is, oh, I've never seen a film like this before, or I've never seen a film in this franchise before. And then, boom, it's a gateway. And you mm. get to explore and you get to find out something new. Mm. Being thrown into the deep end can be really exciting sometimes. Yeah. However, I also think it's fair to say that there are some filmmakers who are catering to people who have similar tastes. And yeah. it's basically just like, listen, I make movies the way I make movies. I like the way I make movies. I have a particular style. There's a lot of filmmakers like this. Everyone from Quentin Tarantino, who's obsessed with the 1960s and 70s, and almost all of his work evokes that. And if that's not your vibe, you might not enjoy his films very much. It's just a plausible scenario. Um, uh, in... in- to, to also uh, cite like P.T. Anderson, sure. Uh, yeah, I, I was I was going to make I was going to cite other examples, but oh, yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, the, the, these are filmmakers who uh, make films about the things that they are themselves interested in, yeah. And they feel if they're interested enough in them and they're willing to sort of delve into all of the, those mm-hmm. details, they assume somebody else is going to be into that too. Yeah, I guess what we're talking about is there are certain films that maybe are about or take the form of art that isn't going to have a mainstream appeal. Maybe a smaller group of people are going to fully appreciate it and it's not going to make a billion dollars at the box office. Fine. But that doesn't mean it's not for everybody. That doesn't mean anyone can't enjoy that. I'm not going to pretend Mm. that a movie about Batman isn't made for people who like Batman. But it also means that... But that doesn't mean that if you're not a huge Batman fan, you shouldn't be able to get into that. I think. I think that's kind of absurd. So... It all boils down to this. We're all trying to tell art to share our perspectives, our opinions, or even just our taste. Even if we're just purely doing stylistic exercises. I really like the color blue. Here's my blue, period. Everyone's like, ooh, that is blue, isn't it? Nicely done. Boom. That can be enough. But, yeah, it's it's absurd to think that just because something is from someone else's experience, it should be alienating to anybody. It shouldn't have to be. It shouldn't have to be. That doesn't mean you have to be inviting, but it also means it's okay to get thrown into the deep end of someone else's experience yeah, and just yeah. swim in it. So anyway, it's a long, long boy, a lot of heavy conversations. Yeah, that's fine. That's 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 yeah. why people write it. No, no, like, no, no, it's like totally the, fine. Like the heavy Thank stuff. you. I don't mind. Uh, I don't mind either. Yeah. But woof, heavy ones this week. <laughs> All right. Um, here's a Batman letter. Okay, great. Um, let's do it. This one comes from Alexandre. Hello, Hello Alexandra. Alexandra. Um, hi, Bat Bibiani and Catman McCool. I hope you guys are fine. <laughs> Ooh, uh, sh- should I st- should I remain Rockmeister or should I change my name to Catman? It's very think, rockabilly, right? Well, I think I think Rockmeister McCool's also eager would be Catman. I guess so. Yeah. So jealous. Um, Catman's so cool. Alexandra speaking from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Oh, hi. Uh, regarding the Batman, Ooh. I liked the movie. Cool. But I didn't love it, and your discussion made me think about some points. Yeah, we, we were not fans of, of Whitney particularly didn't like it. I was more of a mixed bag, but I don't think it's I don't think uh, it entirely works. Yeah, I, I, yeah, and I think it's just dull and not, not incredibly entertaining. I, um, yeah. Uh, you argue that there is no narrative arc for Batman, and that uh, Selina, that the Catwoman character, mm-hmm. uh, has even a, a more interesting arc. Batman starts the movie as a violent vigilante mm-hmm. and the protector of the city who beats up bad guys and ends at the same point. Uh, wrong. The story okay. presents him as a, at a dark and terrifying form that symbolizes fear and uses only terror and brutality as a weapon and ends the plot literally with a torch in his hand symbolizing hope. Uh, the dark, suicidal, embittered persona dies when he throws himself into the water and a new inspiring Batman is reborn with the dawn of a new Gotham. The sun is rising, all the not-so-subtle sim- <laughs> not so symbology. But, okay. but even that can go over the head of jaded movie buffs and fanboys as myself. 
uh, write that down on the internet registry before another critic says that. <laughs> <laughs> Kindly regards, Alexandre. Uh, um, okay. I, I think uh, I think we addressed this actually a little with, bit with the Batman. Um, important imagery. He emerges from the water. Bapt- it's sure. like baptism imagery. It's, it's not subtle. He's holding up a, a Statue of Liberty like torch. He's mm. holding, carrying light. He's mm. leading people into safety. He's, he's putting someone onto uh, a helicopter and, and he holds their hand. There is even dialogue, explicit dialogue to the effect of, I was not effective as a symbol of vengeance. I need to be a symbol of hope. Helping the innocent is better than frightening the guilty. Yeah. Something along those lines. Yeah, um, I, and I again, that's that's uh, that's not unclear, and that's that's an, an incredibly fine sentiment. Uh, I think it, we could have got to it a lot faster. I think and it's I tacked think on at the end. That that was going to be my my argument as well. Uh, mm-hmm. That if there had been a lot more throughout to indicate mm-hmm. that he was emerging from the darkness in some sort of way, yeah, or that he saw when he committed an act of violence that maybe I could could have handled that a little bit better. Or even said that it's like yeah. I beat up that one guy, like I stopped the mugging, but. Yeah, he's just gonna go mug somebody else. I need mm. to start thinking of or like I hit that guy so this. hard, like his jaw got dislocated. I yeah. feel terrible. Like something. There, like, there was a know. moment like that, but that was also right at the end. Yeah, like, all of the these thing. things were crammed right at the end. That's the thing, and that's what we're talking about. I'm not saying that Batman doesn't have anything resembling an arc, and I apologize if it made it sound like I did. What I am saying is that it's an unconvincing one mm. because they're throwing all of that. At the end, there's a bit at the middle, and I don't want to get into spoiler territory, but there's a bit in the middle where he's talking to Alfred, and he's talking about his father and learning some things about his family he didn't know before, and there's an implied uh, uh, sense of thing where he's going to realize that, like, you know, good people can do things the wrong way. Mm. Um, That's in there, but... I I appreciate... I want to say this right now, Alexander, you, you, you have a counterpoint, and you're using the text to explain why you disagree and that it's in the text. Everything you just said is in the text. I'm not going to pretend it's not. And I did notice it too. What I would argue is that it's one thing to have it in the text and it's another thing to sell it. You can, you can just say at the end of a movie, you know, I learned something today. Which, but at the end, when, that, and, that was and the joke of uh, the, the TV show South Park. Yeah, exactly. That that line of dialogue was in every episode. You know, yeah. I've learned something today. Yeah, which is honestly the way a lot of storytelling works. A lot of storytelling takes some form of moral parable. Mm. It's serialized format, individual, doesn't matter. It's about growing. That's where most Western drama is about the state of growing as a person or as a group. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, Batman learns a valuable lesson. Um, but by. Only sort of throwing that in with what I would argue is a clunky voiceover monologue and some pretty ham-fisted imagery. Like, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's really blunt. I think they're... Like, like they're, the I sky think, clears the weather metaphor, yeah. all the rest. But I, yeah. I think what that does is that obfuscates the idea that the, the fact that over the last three hours, we actually haven't seen that much of that. Mm. And it just kind of oversells it at the end to make it feel like, oh, everything ended fine. But I think when you're watching it, you realize that no, he's kind of the same guy. Yeah, the, like, uh, I don't see any. I don't see him doing anything. Okay, I'm, I'm thinking, like, I, I can't imagine. Here's my point: like the whole thing, like oh, he like jumped in the water to save people. Hmm. I don't think the Batman at the beginning of the movie, if a bunch of people were like trapped down a thing, and the only way to save them was by jumping down and hmm. potentially sacrificing himself, I think he'd still do it. Yeah. I see no reason to believe he wouldn't just because he wanted to be a symbol of vengeance. If maybe we had seen at the beginning he had an opportunity to save somebody or brutalize criminals and he did the latter, mm. 
then we could see his personal growth, but he's still Batman. They don't want to show him in a position of moral compromise. His morality in the Batman is already 100% secure. He already has his don't kill policy mm. in place. He already has like his, his, his levels and boundaries 100% set. It's just a matter of degree or tone. Mm. His whole thing is, okay, but from now on, I'm going to strike a more positive tone when I do the exact same thing I would have done earlier. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I don't think that's the kind of change that really justifies a three-hour running time well, here, of your epic film. The, uh, the best way to sort of emphasize that is, mm-hmm. um, and this, this is totally heresy, he turns into a different hero. Mm-hmm. He stops being Batman, uh-huh. This like night creature is sort of lurking around in the shadows mm-hmm. and becomes like, how about this? He turns into Superman at the end. <laughs> okay, well that's that's he put, huge. He puts on the uh, puts you know, on a blue suit and he devotes himself to helping people. Did you ever uh, s- now? Yeah, not the Superman from the comics who's an yeah. alien who can fly. Uh, just she just says at the end of this, you know what? I'm taking off the the helmet. I want people to see my face. I want to help people. I'm going to call myself Superman. One of my favorite... That, that would have been a, an interesting I, twist. I, I don't think you could get away with that, but that's an interesting idea. Uh, I mean, fa- fans would have... You know, <laughs> they would have rioted in the streets. But, down, but, but yeah. you know what? It, it's a bold choice. One of my... But it, it brings to mind an, an interesting uh, example from an actual Batman comic that kind of... I think it made its way into the movie. Did you read or see the animated movie they made out of Darwin Cook's New Frontier? I did. I reviewed okay. that once. Yeah, um, that was that. I really the, the book is amazing. The movie the, cuts out a lot, but it's pretty good. The, the movie, um, the style, I think, cut away from a lot of the film's edge that it would have had otherwise. I think that's yeah. fair to say, and I think the comic has a bit more of an epic sweep. But um, if you've never read it, first off, read the graphic novel. It's they got this gorgeous coffee table book size. Darwin Cook is one of the great comic book storytellers of the last 20, 30 years. I think sadly he's no longer with us. Um, But uh, it basically is about the dawn of the Silver Age as we know it in comics. And it's all about heroes basically uh, coming into their being in the 1950s. The only exceptions are Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman who were created in like the late 30s. And they've been around for a while. And uh, over the course of the film, in only a few scenes, Batman goes through a more vivid and more lasting transformation. Uh, Towards the beginning... Batman is the Dark Avenger. He's mm-hmm. black and he's scary. And there's a whole bit where he's trying to save someone and they won't let him save them because they're too scared of him. Yeah. And he realizes, I've pushed this too far. Yeah. That would have been a great bullet point to have at the beginning. Like, wait, let me save you. Or then he's just like, no, run, you're the Batman, the scary. It's like, people are scared of him. Mm-hmm. He's a vigilante. At the end of New Frontier, the comic end, I think it's in the movie, um, Superman goes to see Batman, and Batman has changed costume. He is no longer in his stark black and gray original outfit, and he's now in a costume much more akin to the Adam West storyline. They're more blue, you know, a little bit more friendly. He's got Robin with him now, and it's about him saying, I'm actually going to live this change that I want to be. I want to be inspiring. I want children to say, what would Batman do, rather Mm. than run Batman might be in the neighborhood. Yeah. And that's him growing up as a person. And just having him save people, I don't think is enough. I think we need to see that change. And we need to see that change in a way that makes us understand it's going to last. Which is one of the reasons why I feel having Bruce Wayne be more of a tangible part of the storyline might have been effective. If at the end of that movie we'd had a scene where Bruce Wayne 
decides to be a more public figure because he can do that. Yeah. And maybe do something like, oh, you know, like, uh, you know, there was this whole subplot about how we've kind of been ignoring the, like, the, the, the child care in Gotham. And like, there's all these orphans who have been like really horribly treated while I was a billionaire and I was taken care of. I'm going to start a foundation for that. It's like a little ham-fisted, but so is the torch thing, I feel. And at least this would be a permanent, <laughs> lasting thing. I am going to do the thing that my father was so inspiring for doing, which is try to make lasting legislative change, a lasting po- social change. That would have been effective, too. We need to see the change take place, not hear about it, and get a quick brush-off-the-shoulder symbolism. It felt a heck of a lot like a studio note. Yeah. It's like we need something a little bit more palpable up. to sort of like put yeah. a button on this movie. Yeah, a little bit more up at Be- the end. Because yeah. it was done in voiceover, because yeah. it was over like footage that looks like they already shot. There's a couple things at the end of The Batman that feel like mm. they're studio notes. There's yeah. a, the last scene with the Riddler feels like it was a studio note yeah, or there's... some attempt to sort of solidify... They they set up stakes and they took them away. There's so many problems I with, with the movie. Um, I don't hate it. I just no. just I feel like you didn't care for it. Yeah, it you didn't, there, there's a lot I like baked. about it, but I think the I think the story is hmm. not one of those things. Right. Uh, time for one more. Yeah, let's do one more. All right. Um, here's a letter from Dan. Hello, Dan. Uh, hmm. Dear Bibbs and Whitney, after suggesting international cinema for critically reclaimed, I was hmm. delighted to hear you'd show Time Me Up, Time Me Down, and especially how it might. How it uh, discusses and shows sex, but I thought uh, you might appreciate some context to which you, which might put the film in a new light. Awesome. Um, uh, do we do we have context in the letter? or Can I just establish this for anyone who? Uh, oh, uh, yeah. Time Out, Time Me Down uh, was a film directed by Peter Almodovar. We reviewed it on uh, one of our podcasts, which yeah. is called Critically Reclaimed, where we go through. Uh, a, a chosen streaming service, mm. our listeners get to vote on one of the films that we mm. put on a poll, and then we watch it and review it. These are yeah. films that uh, you, one of us hasn't seen, you or yeah. I haven't seen, and, uh, uh, most and we recently, kind of catch up on it. And someone pointed out recently that we hadn't done a lot of international cinema and criti- re- critically reclaimed, and uh, gosh darn it, they were right. Mm. So we focused on that for a week in particular, and we'll do it again, obviously. Mm. But um, And yeah, our first one was a Pedro Almodovar film called Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down, starring Antonio Banderas as a man who was released from a mental institution and uh, kidnaps an actress and says, I'm going to make you fall in love with me. Uh, a movie it is both horrifying and cute in equal measure. Yeah, and the that's... movie acknowledges that. And it's a complicated conversation. And, and, so that's, we uh, and that, that's the talent of uh, Pedro Almodovar. Yeah, he can um, balance that. Stuff, anyway, yeah. uh, he says, I'll try to be brief, but uh, briefly, in Francoist Spain, mm. the dictatorship that lasted from 1939 to 1975, life for women was not good, to say the least. They were very much seen as having their role within the domestic sphere and seen as submissive and inferior to men. Men typically took on roles of power in government and military in the church. This is, of course, an overt simplification, but broadly true nonetheless. Okay. Uh, in the film, there seems to be a similar theme of restricting personhood, whether that be in a mental institution, someone being physically restrained, mm. or the idea of playing a role on a film set. To me, this film is all about the gender roles that society uh, that society ties to us and the melodramatic, exaggerated version of this in Ricky's kidnapping of Marina. Mm. Uh, the situation mirrors the lack of agency for women in Franco's Spain and consciously satirizes the ridiculousness of these imposed gender roles in a way that limit personhood. Uh, at certain points, Marina even argue, arguably aids her own kidnapping, reminding Ricky to tie her up when he's yeah. about to leave. Moreover, there seems to be a similar deconstruction of the family unit in the film's, in the film's final scene, which only adds to the commentary. Uh, the final scene is three characters have sort of found formed this ersatz family. Yeah. Uh, in many ways, uh, still reeling from the fallout of the dictatorship, one could view this as Almod- Almodovar... Um, 
Oh, shoot, my phone. Uh, mocking the still lingering past while throwing all the current freedoms of sex and drugs in its face, the same way he does in his earliest films, uh, Peppy Lucy Bum and Dark Habits. Anyway, this isn't any kind of correction, rather just another lens through which to view the film, which I thought people might appreciate. Uh, I'd be interested to hear what you think about this reading and if it comes across today without such an immediate and specific social context to refer to. All the best. Keep up the great work, Dan. Dan, thank you. And I love that this brings us full circle because we were talking earlier about movies that were made for a specific audience. And it does Mm -hmm. a certain awareness of where the movie and where the filmmaker is coming from affect mm. your ability to appreciate the film. Often, yes. Often, well, yeah. well, it can have an impact. And here's an ex- here's a perfect example where you and I saw Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down. And if you listen to our conversation, we we talked about that a little. We didn't talk about the Francoist elements, but we talked about the gender roles a little bit. Mm. But mostly we were interested in the film in terms of how it balanced tone and how it balanced genre mm. and how it felt like a romantic comedy and a horror movie simultaneously and alternatively, depending on the moment. Um, we were able to appreciate the film on a variety of merits without keying into the historical context or the cultural context that adds an even more levels to it. So, is our review of Time Me Up, Time Me Down limited? Sure. I think that's fair. Because we have our perspective. We have our perspective, and we don't know as much about specifically where it was coming from. And we could do even more research, and we could could do that for months, if not years. Um, But we can also learn from other people Mm -hmm. and listen to other perspectives. This is one of the reasons why it's so great that we have so many different film critics in the world and that we need more critics from different uh, uh, backgrounds, perspectives, uh, uh, genders, sexualities, uh, cultures, whatever. Um, I learn more from that than almost anything else. Like we both watched the same movie. We picked up on very different things. And you picked up on things that are really key and interesting. And yet I still think our review is is perfectly valid. It's just it comes from this other perspective. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that movie is probably intended for more of a Spanish audience. You know, it's, it's made in Spain. Made, made by a Spanish yeah. man. Americans are going to uh, uh, watch that film through a different lens. We kind of have to. We just grew up where we grew mm-hmm. up. Uh, but that doesn't mean we can't appreciate it. We just might appreciate it on a different level, and that's okay too. Mm. So that's a great. That's ah, oh, that's such a great way to end this. <laughs> okay, thank you for that. They thank you for that. That's so. Oh, I learned so much today. Thank you. <laughs> oh, I love learning. Okay, everybody, thank you so much for joining in. Thank you so much for asking questions. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise. This, that's what this is all about That's why I love this podcast so much uh, Thank you for listening to We've Got Mail. If you want to email us about anything we discussed today, or anything else, or anything you want. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. And we also have a P.O. box for those who prefer uh, to write uh, the old-fashioned way. Mm. Whitney? Uh, yeah, send us a physical letter. Uh, write it to the Critically Acclaimed Network. Oh, sorry. Write it to the Batman. Uh, <sighs> care of Critically Acclaimed Network. Uh, P.O. box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yeah. Do it today. Uh, we're also on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. At Whitney Seibold. If you want to listen to our Star Trek podcast, All Our Yesterdays, or our Batman podcast, Holy Batman, or our podcast, Only the Best, where we review every film ever nominated for Best Picture, or any of our other exclusive Patreon stuff. You may do so by heading on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. You can also vote for future episodes of critically reclaimed and other cool stuff as well. Thank Mm -hmm. you to very, very special. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to every single one of our patrons without whom we could not be here. We would not be here. It would not be possible for us to make these podcasts. 
So thank you. Thank you for keeping our show going. Thank you for being part of our audience. Thank you for writing in. And uh, sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. <laughs>